Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin in prayer together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all sin, and save our souls, O good one, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Matthew Meehan, our speaker, teaches history of Western thought and directs the Jackson Scholar Senior Thesis Program at the Height School a magna cum laude graduate of the University of Dallas. In the valedictorian of his class, he holds a BA in politics, an MA in English, and a PhD in literature for his dissertation on Shakespeare, Thomas More, and the education of leading citizens. Matthew is also a fellow of the Center for Thomas More Studies, and he has been named the Warsham Teaching Fellow at Hillsdale College's Washington, D.C., Alan P. Kirby Jr. Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship. Dr. Meehan has worked as an editor for both academic and popular publications, and he is currently working towards publication of his illustrated book of poetry, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. Mouthful. <laughs> his, his wonderful wife, Molly, who may be watching tonight, and he has seven children, and please welcome back Dr. Meehan. Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you very much, Father, and thank you, Andy. Let me try and give as brief as I can a lecture, just sort of of introduction to Roman philosophy and, and Seneca in particular. Very quickly, how I bumped into or kind of backed into Roman philosophy is a short story. I had no formal training in Roman philosophy. Uh, for my undergraduate, which was in political philosophy and English at a very good liberal arts school, um, University of Dallas, master's in English, really no Cicero, Seneca, very little Roman philosophy, I, except for uh, Roman letters, the Aeneid. Uh, I translated the Aeneid uh, for two years. And then, uh, and then a PhD. And it came to our attention that Seneca was everywhere in the tradition and People uh, thought so highly of him. He was one of the, the beloved of the patriarchs, the church fathers. He was cited as an authority multiple times by Thomas Aquinas, and he was all over uh, a host of other thinkers. And we said, well, how do we learn about, and this is the same goes for Cicero, how do we learn about these thinkers? So what we started doing is, at the Center for Thomas More Studies, we brought in the great Ciceronians like Walter Nagorski from Notre Dame and others to come and educate us. And there are really only a few great giants around who can still do this. And a group of us got together to learn these things. And when we started to learn them, we started to realize how fundamental they are and how they were ubiquitous in our lives uh, and in our tradition, uh, and it's particularly in our church. So 
Roman philosophy, I think, is one of the most important, influential facets of Western tradition and liberal arts and philosophy. But it's also, I think, the least understood. It's a real lacuna. It's, I like to say it's the missing middle premise of the Western syllogism, Greece, Rome, and then the church, right? And we're, we're, we're usually ignorant of what is on offer from Roman philosophy. And the two great giants, as I mentioned, are Cicero and Seneca. Uh, they're the most influential, but there are many others of you know, lesser importance, but still serious. And like Plato and Aristotle, the two big giants of Greece, these thinkers have been infused and intertwined into our entire tradition, language, habit, and thought of the church. It's part of the ratio, the fides et ratio, uh, that is our faith life. Uh, especially and more obviously in the Latin West, but it's also true of the, of the Greek tradition as well. But to sort of go on and wax poetic about the Romans, in a certain sense, is, I think, dangerous because every time I speak about Roman philosophy to anyone who knows the tradition somewhat, you know, or even very well, but almost no one knows this part of the tradition, except to say, oh, Cicero, he did the Catalinarian speeches, and they maybe can rattle off a line from Catalino, Catalina, how long must you try our patience? Uh, something like that. They see him as merely a rhetorician. There's usually some animosity. Uh, and so I think it's actually best to quickly go through a kind of apologia, an apology or a defense of Roman philosophy, briefly by sort of, let me just broadside the Romans in the way I've heard many times, you know, in a certain sense, I thought myself, because I didn't know any better. So let me just read a diatribe for you and then try to take it up and answer them each. If these thinkers, Cicero and Seneca, and the Roman historians and poets are so important, then why haven't I studied them? It's a good question, right? Why don't I know anything about them really when I know a great deal about Plato and Aristotle, right, and the Greeks? In fact, what little I've heard about these two is that they're sort of Greek light, you know, sort of Coke Zero, uh, a kind of bastardization of more excellent Greek thought. And aren't we supposed to hate Stoicism as a dangerous, moral evil, antithetical to Christian spirit? Why in the end should I even care about these thinkers? I don't know if you've heard these kinds of critiques. I know in the academic circles I travel in, sometimes I hear it rather vociferously. So let me take them up one at a time. If these thinkers, Cicero and Seneca and the Roman historians and poets are so important, then why haven't I studied them? One answer, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I like it, is you have studied them in a certain sense. The encyclical tradition of the popes employs Seneca without citation by custom due to his familiarity. He's all over the place. JP2 doesn't, Leo XIII, it's all over the encyclical tradition. He's also jam-packed in the moralia and the moral sentiments of Shakespeare. He has a profound influence on Thomas Akempis in the imitation of Christ, and he's actually cited positively there repeatedly. And he's... Also, in a host of other of our, you know, great thinkers' works, he had a positive influence on St. Augustine's thought. Uh, and in fact, one of the quiet things that Augustine's battling with in the Confessions is he's thinking through Seneca and both using him and qualifying him, correcting him, but in a certain sense, kind of uh, nodding to him very powerfully. And we're going to talk about that a little later. He also influenced uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, St. Thomas More, and his moral works, and also Aquinas, he's an authority in the Summa, used often. Uh, and numerous church fathers, as I, the tag I gave Andy, St. Jerome says, 
Seneca's Epistles is one pagan work that every Christian ought to read. So if you have to choose one, you should read the epistles. That's mind-blowingly powerful praise. He's also you know, a very fond favorite of the founding fathers of the United States, too. George Washington read him regularly in a lot of the American sort of jurisprudence and common law tradition employs Seneca and Sententiae, uh, his moral sentiments and his maxims. So uh, take another one quickly. Why don't I really know anything about them when I know a great deal about Plato and Aristotle? The whole understanding of the de-Hellenization of the church, right, and of Western culture that the Regensburg Address took up, uh, I think in a certain sense, we're re-Hellenizing society slowly, and it's part of what Tom Wolfe called the great relearning, rediscovering our own tradition bit by bit. And if you notice in the Regensburg Address, people often forget, and now that I see how important the Romans are, I kind of make a mountain out of a molehill. But he says, Hellenization is really important. Also, the Roman contribution, the subsequent Roman contribution. He, he gives a shout out to Rome in the Regensburg Address, which no one really pays attention to because they don't know much about it. But Benedict knew. And in fact, what I think is the case is the Roman philosophy is actually the last full flower of Hellenism. So as we work our great relearning, of course, you've got to do Plato and Aristotle and get your metaphysics right. But then you've got to really, once the metaphysics are clear, right, then you've got to move into the, the following moral philosophy that comes from that metaphysics. And that has been traditionally picked up in the church through the study of Roman moral philosophy. And that's where the Romans are really strongest. Metaphysics, you go to Aristotle. For moral philosophy, not the Nicomachean ethics in the tradition of the church. It was actually Cicero's own duties and Seneca's epistles. In fact, they were far more revered, copied, integrated, worked with, and adapted than Aristotle throughout the tradition. Uh, you say, well, why, what about the, uh, the Summa? Aristotle gets a lot of mention there. Yes, for metaphysics. But if you notice, Aristotle's the hot topic at the time when Aquinas is writing. But while he's working on Aristotle's and ethics, he's constantly bringing in Tully, first name basis, my friend Tullius Cicero, and Nostri Seneca, our friend Seneca. Right? He's bringing those because that's the moral tradition of natural philosophy in the church. And it's, it was after Aquinas as well, because Aquinas actually agrees in many, many cases with Seneca. Not always, just as he disagrees with the, uh, all the pagan philosophers on one thing or another. Pope St. John Paul II, he talks about in Memory and Identity, his last book, he says, the evil of the 20th century was not a small-scale evil. It was an evil of gigantic proportions, an evil which availed itself of state structures in order to accomplish its wicked work, an evil built up into a system. I submit to you that one of the principal things of that system was to erase the memory of Roman philosophy. They really wanted it to go away because it's the moral philosophy that is most exhortative, most clear, most full of the kinds of precepts that get people to get up and go and prepare the soil for the seed of Christ. It's very effective, and that's why they wanted that erased more than anything. Because let's have metaphysical arguments. We can have that fight. But day to day, I want these people to not be moral, right? Because once you're immoral on a chronological level, then who cares about metaphysics? Like, I'm bored. So those are, you know, big arguments, and I'll let them lie as assertions. But just so you know where I'm coming from and where I think this is, is it Greek light, a kind of bastardization? 
No, it's not. But it does appear that way. It really does. There's a kind of a, a sense in which Stoic philosophy and academic philosophy, Cicero's not a Stoic, but a lot of Roman philosophy falls out more practically, more naturally. You've all now hopefully read the letters. You get the sense of it's kind of just, hey, I'm just talking, right? It, it splashes out. It's more like Augustinian philosophy, like reading the Confessions, which looks very happenstantial and emotional, but is also extremely precise inside of this sort of pleasant rhetorical flow and emotional, beautiful and artistic, but it's actually full of precision and very concerned with getting things just so. He learned that from Cicero and Seneca, from these Romans. Uh, it's that kind of style. So it looks less clear than the system of Aristotle, but it also winds up being, I think, a via media between the very complex, confusing, discursive, platonic dialectical uh, tradition, which is very hard to understand, and then the sort of more dry, systematic, uh, and in a certain sense, cold and a little antisocial presentation of truth uh, that you get in Aristotle. I sound like I'm dissing them, but it's standing on the shoulders of giants, right? That's the point. But it's worth sort of appreciating uh, the differences. It's worth noting that part of that wittiness of the Romans, Aquinas actually shares. I want to show you uh, a little something from a passage from the Summa on the Stoics. This is where a lot of Catholic uh, thinkers and theologians think, oh, Seneca's just bad. Because in an objection, he appears saying, you should never use anger as, as part of your action. There shouldn't be justified anger. Seneca says this in the De Ire, one of his moral essays about anger, and never use it. In the reply to the objection, Aquinas actually corrects and says, no, Aristotle's the one to go to here because uh, Seneca's actually picking a fight with Aristotle, and he's wrong to say that you should never have anger uh, when you're trying to achieve justice. Right? That's wrong. It's actually a, a proper appetite that has to be moderated and completely ruled by reason, but it's good. But in the response in the middle, he says, look, there's a difference between the peripatetics, Aristotle, and the Stoics. For the Stoics exclude anger and other passions of the soul from the mind of the wise and good man. And then he says, he blesses Aristotle's idea, just as I said. And then he says, on the other hand, the Stoics gave the name of passions to certain immoderate emotions of the sensitive appetite, wherefore they called them sicknesses or diseases. And for this reason, severed them altogether from virtue. And he says, and possibly these two schools, Aristotle and Seneca, or the Stoics, possibly they differed not in reality, but in their way of speaking. Now, for, Ar for Aquinas to say possibly is him to use Ciceronian or Roman, you know, clever rhetoric of saying uh, probably, right? But, but I'm going to use it gently because I don't want to get into a big fight. I know you guys love Aristotle. This is the audience in Paris at the time. Everyone was in super hot to trot for Aristotle. And he's trying to say, I think you have a distinction without a difference. But I'll beat up on Seneca for a little while for you in the objections. But in the answer that I answer, respondeo, my response, I really don't think there's as big a difference as you say. It's actually a rhetorical difference. And then the question's thrown back, why this rhetorical difference? Why does Seneca present the truth in one way, right, and Aristotle in another? 
The one more philosophically precise, I would argue, Aristotle, although sometimes Aristotle is straight up wrong and the Romans are actually correct and much closer to our Christian understanding and morals, and we're not going to talk too much about that tonight, but there are lots of cases. They had lots of time to think about Aristotle and actually improve upon him in a certain sense, right? But the flip side is Seneca presents the moral life in the sort of pedagogical stages that help bring somebody along towards the morals. The Nicomachean ethics is just a giant brick. And it's amazing for those who can study and have a philosophical rigor and are that kind of person. One of my bosses is Dr. Larry Arn from Hillsdale College. He teaches it every year. He loves it. I love it. I teach it every year, the Nicomachean ethics. It's an amazing book. But it is a tough book uh, and it's a stern book. So there's a kind of wisdom and pedagogy of how to lead someone along in stages in the moral life, from milk to meat, if you will, to use our own parlance, which uh, Seneca uses as well. And then, you know, isn't there stoicism bad? You betcha. Stoicism's dangerous, right? It really is. And there's bad stoicism like Marcus Aurelius's, which is really dark and sort of just be tough and, you know, shut up. Dark, inhumane kinds of toughness that you could see somebody deciding to like persecute all the Christians, right? With that kind of stoicism. And quite frankly, some of the Stoics were our worst enemies in the Roman Empire. But there's good stoicism, which is much closer. Marcus Aurelius didn't like Seneca. He thought he was a bad Stoic. You're weak. Because you think it's about humanism and being kind and merciful. And, you know, it's and like, yeah, sure, mercy, but toughness first, always, right? That sort of hard caricature of stoicism which is not a caricature it's spot on Seneca actually is the exception to the rule in some sense uh, and to be taken more seriously and but still carefully but that's the case with all pagan thinkers right Matthew 10 16 which is how I discovered Seneca through Thomas More Matthew 10 16 be wise as serpents innocent as dove the Christian humanist motto of Erasmus and Thomas More said hey look these are serpents and Shakespeare's play about Thomas More says, hey, realize there are serpent skins with sharp state. They'll bite you. So all pagan philosophy has to be handled very carefully, very piously and thoughtfully and critically. So obviously we're not going to you know, baptize anything. There are problems in Plato, problems in Aristotle, problems in Cicero, problems in Seneca. But nevertheless, I think we should give it another hearing. I think I've gone on too long, except to say that the mos maiorum, the wisdom and mores of the elders of the church, have always used these two, Cicero and Seneca, to help teach moral philosophy. And we are the first attempt to not teach with these guys. So I'm all about getting the band back together, like bringing it back. So that's the long story short about that. Seneca's epistles. Let me read you one quick note about how to read Seneca from Seneca himself. This is actually from Epistle 33, which I almost included, but it's too much. For this reason, give over hoping that you can skim by means of epitomes the wisdom of distinguished men. Right? Cherry-picking Thomas Aquinas or, or Aristotle or Augustine is a dangerous thing. Look into their wisdom as a whole. Study it as a whole. They are working out a plan and weaving together line upon line a masterpiece from which nothing can be taken away without injury to the whole. Examine the separate parts, if you like, which we're going to do tonight, provided you examine them as parts of the man himself. 
She is not a beautiful woman whose ankle or arm is praised, but she whose general appearance makes you forget to admire her single attributes. So we've got to be careful. Seneca is the master of the paradoxical style. And in fact, G.K. Chesterton may not get his beatification if I'm the devil's advocate because he ripped off Seneca everywhere for all of his paradoxes, which is great. And I think, it's, again, Chesterton knows the custom. You just rip Seneca off. But that paradoxical style, you can read one thing from Seneca and then it seems to contradict even in the same letter. So you've got to be careful to weigh and measure and see the ironic style, that witty style that I think Aquinas was nodding to politely in that uh, question I asked. I'm going to skip Seneca's bio, except to know that he was a playwright, he was a poet and a rhetorician, he was a statesman, he governed all of the empire for a time under Nero, seven years of just rule, and then Nero eventually kicked him out and said, no, I want to be a horrible tyrant and do all my bad things. And so he went into exile, lived poverty and difficulty, uh, and then was eventually sort of lumped into a conspiracy to kill Nero, and Nero had him commit suicide. Uh, which he did very calmly and admirably like Socrates, but that's not very admirable in the end. Very much at the same time as Paul in Rome. Uh, in fact, a lot of people thought they communicated, but most of those letters were be false. So why don't we jump right into Epistle 30 or 20. Could I get someone, anyone will volunteer to do a reading of just the first two sections? Uh, Evan? Yeah, I'll read the first two paragraphs here. Yes, please do. If you are in good health and you think you are self-worthy of becoming at last your own master, I am glad. For the credit will be mine if I can drag you from the floods in which you are being buffeted without hope of emerging. This, however, my dear Lucilius, I ask and beg of you on your part that you let wisdom seep into your soul and to test your progress, not by mere speech or writings, but by stoutness of heart and decrease of desire. Prove your word by your deeds. Far different is the purpose of those who are speech-making and trying to win the approbation of, of a throng of hearers. Far different that of those who allure to the ears of young men and idlers by many-sided or fluent argumentation. Philosophy teaches us to act, not to speak. It exacts of every man that he should live according to his own standards, that his life should not be out of harmony with his words, and that, further, his inner life should be one of hue and not out of harmony with all of his actions. This I say is the highest of duty and the highest of proof of wisdom, that deed and word should be in accord, that a man should be equal to himself under all conditions and always the same. But, you reply, who can maintain this standard? Very few to be sure. Well, we stop there, Evan. That's, I think that's good. Sorry, I told you both sections, but I think we can stop there. So you were just about to start on a, a refutatio, and I'll try to use those words so you can see them. The first section is uh, what Latin rhetoricians would call an exordium, and it's a kind of image of the whole rest of the argument. So it's worth spending some time here in this first paragraph. And then actually, I think the second is an elaboratio on it, an elaboration, fancy pants Latin words, but uh, it's good to know these canons of rhetoric. What do you make of this first section, section one? Questions, comments, thoughts? Why these, these sort of this strange pairing of stoutness of heart and decrease of desire? Uh, yes, Paul. Yeah, one, one thing that I, that I noticed is I, I, thought, I think I've seen in other 
Latin texts, the, the phrase, if you are well, I am well. And it seems to be sort of a, a standard greeting in a, in a letter. And that's how he begins this, but, but he sort of ratchets it up a little bit, right? So it's not just, if you are well, I am well. It's, if you are well, or in good health, and if you think yourself worthy of becoming at last your own master, I am glad, or gaudio. And mm-hmm. you know, having gone to Hillsdale, I, I, and the, the motto, you know, strength rejoices in the challenge, gaudio isn't just, you know, isn't just I am glad, it's I, I rejoice, right? So he's sort of taking the, the thing that a friend would normally say to another in a letter, if you are well, I am well. In other words, it's sort of like a, a nod to friends sharing things in common, right? Your wellness is my wellness. And, you know, well and good. Your wellness is my wellness, but you're becoming your own master. That's, like, that's my rejoicing. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like is, is moving the needle on, on the friendship in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Yes, Teresa. Those first two sentences seem inconsistent to me. On the one hand, he's saying... I'm happy you're well. And the next thing he's saying, I hope I can drag you from the floods which you're being buffeted without hope of emerging. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Am I read, I, I'm reading it wrong. I must be missing something. No, I, I, there's, there's forced onto a kind of ironic understanding, right? You, you, you have to have, okay, what's the context? What is there? He says, First of all, if you think yourself worthy, it's conditional, uh, right? See, right? It's all if, right? If this, then I can rejoice, which the contrary to Paul's point is if you're not, you will harm me, right? We're linked. Right? I can't, I, I will be sad. I won't rejoice. <laughs> so you, your choices are going to affect me, right? By the way, one of the key things of Roman philosophy that, guys like Cicero and Seneca talk about is and teach about at great length is societas, that associative nature, mm-hmm. that we're not just independent individuals. Yeah, so for the credit will be mine, which is funny in itself, if I could drag you from the floods in which you are being buffeted without hope of emerging. What is the flood there? What's that torrent? Does anyone know? Is anyone... Yes, please. Uh, is it Anne-Marie? Yes. Is it pride in thinking that he knows everything? He wants to become his own master, right? I hope you want to become your own master. So the, f- the flood, I think in the end, you're right. It is a kind of pride, but the, f- the flood is something that drags you without you being in charge, right? So it, whatever is preventing him is that kind of thing. Yes, Alexander? I think the, the flood might be like wrong desire. Like you have um, improper desires that could be a flood that, flood that drags you away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that gets to that last, second to last sentence I mentioned, when he says, by stoutness of heart and decrease of desire, right? A flood is too much water, right? So if it's a flood, then too much desire, right? You need to turn the spigot down, right? And have fewer desires, or at least the kind of the negative kind. Oh, yes, please, Joshua. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, um, in the, uh, the paragraphs that follow, uh, he sort of goes into this case, uh, which is the case of many of us, that we want to perform and we want to be good and we want to be virtuous and all these things, um, but our desires are, are too strong. And um, we sort of find ourselves stopping and starting and being, and being sucked in and, and sometimes doing well but not developing uh, virtues and, and habits and patterns of doing good, but um, always sort of being uh, sucked back into that that flood of, of mediocrity almost. Right. Or, or, or 
maybe feed would be a good word for the 21st century, right? Your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, your email inbox cascading flood of uh, right. business or good. Any other thoughts about this first paragraph before we move on? Good. I, the only thing I would add is, is um, just that last bit. He says this, however, my dear Lucilius, and this is by the way, he's a young Lucilius is a young procurator. Um, he's an official. He's written some poetry. So he's sort of like Seneca on a minor level. He's sort of like mini me and interested in philosophy and trying to be like Seneca in a certain sense, very promising young guy, but more of an Epicurean. So he's trying to talk to a guy who's in love with pleasure. Right. So it's a very useful uh, rhetorical back and forth for our day because Lord knows we have far too many people in love with pleasure. This, however, my dear Lucilius, I ask and beg of you on your part that you let wisdom sink into your soul. Philosophy sink into your soul and test your progress, not by mere speech and writings. So he sets up this dichotomy between scripto and orazione, between speaking and writing, right, words, but by stoutness of heart and decrease of desire. Prove words by your deeds. This is a line from Plato's Republic, actually. Right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, we need to have words matched up to our deeds, right? So he's taking Plato's Republic as his theme here. Yes, Evan. I think, I think he's saying, I think he's saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he's saying, I want you to internalize this. I want you to learn this as efficiently as possible to the point where you don't even have to tell me that it's, it just is apparent through who you are and, and how you live your life. Yeah. You almost think there's a kind of a critique. Like I read your last letter. It was very philosophical, but I'm not so convinced <laughs> you're doing what you've been saying in your last beautiful letter, right? That kind of, yeah, sort of like, wow, these are brave words. Or don't, fine. Tell, don't tell me about it. Show me. <laughs> yeah, right. Show me the money. Yeah. But also, I just worth noting that, bear in mind that animi fermentate, the stoutness of heart, the firm soul, and then the decrease of desire, right, which is the diminution of cupidity, cupiditas, which is the moral term which we adopted right into the moral theology of the church, right? So he's, he's making that kind of distinction. There's good desires and there are bad desires, which is, again, why Aquinas is like, maybe there's a distinction without a difference, guys, you know, good desires versus bad. But yeah, prove your words and your deeds. What about the second? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yes, please, Tom. Yeah, so right about, in a, about the sixth line down right there in the middle where it starts, uh, philosophy teaches us to act, not to speak. It exacts of every man that he should live according to his own standards. And I read that about five times, and I probably still don't have it right. But it jumped out at me as almost a, a thread of relativism, that I get to decide how I want to act, and you get to decide how you want to act. And that may or may not be, I'll use the word conforming to the, the moral and theological uh, 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 rigors of the society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think very often Seneca is willing to appear that way because he's talking to a young Epicurean who's more or less saying sort of pursue various, you know, activities and pleasures that suit you, obviously, but there's, but don't get too ruffled by these other matters. But I agree. It is that way. It looks that way. Why don't we jump quickly to section five? Because I think this is actually is a good way to answer that observation. Cause I think you're right. And let me first defend Seneca from that, your charge of relativism. 
Uh, but then let me let me maybe condemn him in a different way uh, for the same line. Therefore, to omit the ancient definitions of wisdom and to include the whole manner of human life, I can be satisfied with the following. What is wisdom? Always desiring the same things and always refusing the same things. Now, wait a minute. You're like, wait a minute, so who cares what the standard is, right? But then he sort of says, you may be excused from adding the little proviso that what you wish should be right. So he sort of says, hey, look, like there is a kind of relativity. Like you need to do what you, what you think is right and then always do it, follow your conscience. But then he goes, but we'll, we'll let you off the hook right now because this is an early letter out of 124. We're starting you off with the milk, right? You little relativist, you. Let's start you off there, but realize, don't forget about right. We'll, but we'll, we'll excuse you, almost like a child. Like, you don't have to have that part of the lesson down yet. Just try to be consistent, even if you're an idiot. <laughs> right? So I think, I think you're right that he's letting himself appear as a relativist, but there's these little mocks on his interlocutor. Yes, please. Uh, is it Lauren? Lauren, yeah. Yes. Um, well, I was just wondering about that thought, Tom, that right after he says that, he talks about, like, harmony, about your life and your actions. And so I'm wondering if maybe there's an assumption or maybe somewhere else in the epistles if harmony isn't possible with, like, bad desires or with, like, an unhealthy attachment thing. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. something that he does mention later on. Yeah, he has a sustained conversation about natural law and nature, and his work on pleasure is a pleasure to read. <laughs> it's really good uh, because he talks about the nature of unnatural acts are those that don't have a terminus, they don't end, they have a kind of creepy infinitude that isn't circumscribed and corporeal. Uh, it just goes on and on forever. Like, uh, you know, how many levels are there in Donkey Kong? Well, once you win, there's five million more harder versions of the whole levels again. You're like, okay, that's maybe not a natural desire. Let's, you know, give me that video game, kid. Go play outside. At least the day ends when the sun goes down. It's a natural play. But, yeah, so there, there are things. But, again, like kind of like the warning, we're looking at it in pieces, so it's best to try to bear those things in mind. So that's right. That's a good question. Any other thoughts on Section 2 or Five. Yes, please, Lisa, and then Alex. It does seem like he's setting up his argument. I mean, to go back to the title on practicing what you preach, I think that's what he's setting up. Um, the buffeting is, are you really practicing what you preach? And setting up the idea of harmony early on so that we can see what we might be preaching or practicing. So, you know, when you kind of zoom back and see it as a whole, you can see how this argument's unfolding. Just want to make that little point. Yeah. Thank you. Alex? Uh, I had the same initial question about the moral relativism, but it was kind of answered for me at the end of section five, where he says, no man can always be satisfied with the same thing unless it is right. So I was kind of getting a sense that every person is kind of infused um, with that natural law of that conscience of you know what is right. So if I know what is right for me, it correlates to what is objectively right for everyone because I've been able to find that proper conscience natural law within me mm -hmm. instead of being like a, a relative. Uh, if I may. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I picked up on, this, on the same thing that Alexander was talking about, but, but it was the, it was the satisfaction and, and no man is satisfied unless it's with, unless it is right. 
And so, you know, the, the wrong desires that the Lauren was referring to, you're going to grab them and grab them and grab them and grab them. And then you'll just never, ever be satisfied until you grab the things that are right. Yeah. No, good. Matt, Matt one more, one more point. I want to oh, please. Yeah. Paul, I didn't see you throw in there. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if we think about that, the end of section five as, as his, as his answer to this potential for, for relativism, it actually also reinforces an, a, what I think is another purpose of, of the epistle, which is, well, it, it counters the, the objection that he raises, right? But you reply, who can maintain this standard, right? Part of the purpose of this epistle is to, is to say that it's actually practical for, for Lucilius to, to do this, right? And so Lucilius may be thinking, how, how can I even know what, what is right, l- let alone consistently do it? And the answer here is, you know, keep going on the same road. Just try to be like more and more consistent. And, you know, because you will only be satisfied if you're doing a thing that's right, if you're consistent and do, and do a thing that is satisfying, then you'll, you'll be on the right track. You'll be, you'll be getting there, even if you don't get there like tomorrow. Yeah. And this is the trouble with words and deeds linking up, right? I can say what the rule is, but then I look at my life and I say, I can't live this rule, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. And what you're left to do in these letters is sort of imagine what is, what is Lucilius, what's he saying to him? And you sort of, there's the answer here, I think, and you've, you've put your finger on it. Hey, don't give up. I think that initial question we raised, I forget which, which one of you raised it, but the, the notion of the, the floods, what are the floods? It's a bit of a flood of despair, right? Drowning is a tradition. It's one of the topics of despair is too much water in the tempest, right? It's either a hanging or a drowning is at the beginning of, you know, act one of the tempest. Hanging is too much anger, like I'm going to kill somebody and get hung for it, right? Go up or go down sad, I'm going to drown. So it's either a drowning or a hanging. You've got to control these passions of anger and sadness. This is, by the way, Seneca in Shakespeare, for sure. He makes very much a lot of Seneca his friend in the tempest. But I think it's that I can't do this. I've written, I've said, these are what I think, these are my beliefs, but I can't follow them. And he's saying, look, this is the whole of wisdom. Is you've got the mark, now try to live up to it. This is the goal, is live according to your conscience. Right? Which, yes, it sounds like relativism if you excuse yourself of, it's got to be a good and well-informed conscience. But at whatever level someone is, if they're going against their conscience, they're probably not on the right road. Yes, Teresa. The end of five here sounds like Aristotle to me. I mean, didn't he say we're supposed to desire what we need, what is right? Isn't that what he's saying here? Yes. He is doing something a little different in that he's adding this rather striking claim that we're going to leave off for a minute, omit the ancient definitions of wisdom. Which, what are the ancient definitions of wisdom is sort of a question. I think the two big ones are, right, it's the love of philosophy, the, the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? We're going we're gonna to pursue the love of wisdom, which is sort of the full incorporation of the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? That which is to be contemplated, the completion of the intellectual virtues and the moral virtues all working to fulfill man's final end, right? The summum bonum is a certain, a certain sense you know, God, but in the humanistic sense, it's wisdom, right? That's how we would describe it in us, and itself would be God. But here he says, 
let's not use that. The other one is Plato's. It's philosophy is a preparation for death, right? Sort of wisdom. The love of wisdom is actually the love of figuring out how to die and go to the Isle of the Blessed and mm. contemplate the forms. He's saying, well, actually, let's not do that for a minute. Let's just focus on the moment here and now. Mm. That's the end. That's the telos, which is great. And you got to have that. But this guy's in despair right now. I'm not communing with the forms. I'll never get there. Well, what, do I, what does a person need in the moment? What milk, not meat, what milk is needed for someone right now? That's the great wisdom of the Romans is it's called practical philosophy because it tries to hit people in media res, in the middle of their, their journey and doesn't constantly just lay out the entire thing. Just as if you were talking to a friend who's an atheist, right, and doesn't believe any of this stuff, you wouldn't necessarily start with the entire moral law, right? You'd say, hey, well, let's start with these two things. So I think that's the sort of change on Aristotle is he's presenting things in a different way, but it's not just presentation. It's also a kind of moral, practical wisdom about how to move souls towards that telos, which is impressive. By the way, in defense of Aristotle, he was said to have written a whole bunch of Platonic dialogues styled dialogues, but we lost them all. Now, in condemnation of Aristotle, people in Greece tended to keep the things that were worth keeping, so maybe Aristotle wasn't so good at that. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I don't know, but Aristotle, you know, these are his lecture notes. He'd probably be like, no, I would never say this, you know, like this way. This is just for my inner class, you know. One other thing about this that I want to point to, let me just point out a couple things about these openings that I hope will help everybody as they read through this over the week to really crack open all three letters together next week. The word must be uh, cousin to the deed, right? So the, the, we've got to have the two together, word and deed put together, the ideal, right, that's said, and then actually instantiating it in action, corporally in the world, bringing those two things together is very difficult. And where do you see it most? You actually see it in the crisis of the will. Like Paul says, I, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I, I don't do it. You know, why, what is this, this old man and this struggle, right? What you see in the Latin here is in section two, he says, this is the highest duty, and the highest proof of wisdom, that deed and word should be in accord. Accord is a word about, you know, being with the heart, right? There's this understanding in the Romans of the heart, this, this understanding of charity and the seat of charity, which is the heart. And that's the Roman philosophers taking Aristotle and Plato in a certain sense steps forward towards what we know today about these things. So he says it has to be in, in concordant, right, is the Latin there, that man should be equal to himself. And that's that kind of seeming relativism that you were talking about, Tom, under all conditions and always the same, which ideally when you're in beatitude, you don't change, right? Because we're always the same way, which is blessed. But then you look at the section at five, which we were talking about, this weird new definition. What is wisdom? Look at the Latin, if you can. It's right after the question, quid est sapientia? Do you see the Latin up above in the left-hand column? Mm -hmm. Semper idem vele or vele, atque idem nole. Vele et nole, or atque nole. This line is a line that is a governing line for the entire confessions of Augustine. 
the will, the willy-nilly. I will, but I can't will. My will wants to will the thing that it wants to will. That's the whole pear tree scene, and then it's taken up again in the fig tree scene. That understanding of the heart being split and the will being seemingly two. Vole et nole, willy-nilly. I can't make a decision. I can't do it. The first section here, sections one through five, which is the first half of the entire letter, is about, this is the maxim. Here's how to do it. Be consistent. It's the word of this thing. I submit to you that the second half is a kind of instruction in the deed, how to do it. That the actual structure of the letter, this first letter 20, is a kind of beautiful image of this. And if you look at six, for this reason, men do not know what they wish, except at the actual moment of wishing. No man ever decided once and for all to desire or to refuse. Judgment varies from day to day. I waver willy-nilly, vole et nole. Changes in the opposite, making many man pass his life in a kind of game, back and forth, not being consistent. Section six, the middle of this letter, is about a crisis of the will. I can't choose to do what I need to do. I can't get the word, my ideal, to be unified with the deed, putting it into action. There's this beautiful uh, structure, which is, I think, a sort of moral act of trying to communicate through the rhetoric of the letter, the very interior life of man and this struggle. He doesn't understand the fallen will, the way Augustine will do so much more to elaborate and clarify, but he essentially sets up for Augustine this drama of the will, of free will, and the complexity of instantiating it in the world. It's a good place to leave it halfway through one letter, but the other letters are shorter. Thank you so much, Dr. Ian. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.